Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 37 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a moment to rate and review the show. If you're already a listener and you like it, give us five stars. Let people know why you like it. Uh, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, go ahead and send it to them. And uh, we'll see if we can grow the audience for this podcast. Um, literally seconds before I press record. Well, I, I get, well, here we go. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> All right, let's get our ducks in a row, folks. Time for the podcast. The reason I feel flustered is I've spent all more, I, you know, I, um, I had this intercession class for school that just started, and uh, it's basically a semester's worth of work in three weeks, and so, um, you know, my work schedule is the same, and I've been spending like six to eight hours a day just like reading about anthropology and, and, and taking quizzes and taking notes and, and all that sort of stuff, but um, I was doing a fair amount of that this morning, and then... You know, I, I, I was like, well, I got to record the podcast, but let me take like uh, 30 minutes. I played like a quick game of chess and I was like, well, let me see if there's something on Netflix or something. And uh, I stumbled on the the, uh, the Epstein documentary called Filthy Rich. And so I was literally just watching like the first 20 minutes of it and felt myself getting sucked in. And I was like, man, if I don't do the podcast now, I'm not going to do it before work. So um, but I was literally just hearing about a super wealthy, creepy man, uh, creeping on young girls. So I feel a little, I feel a little, uh, I don't know. I feel the residual of, uh, I feel the residual of that. <laughs> I'm not sure how that will affect the podcast, but, um, but such is life. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything that came up in the last episode that needs to be sort of wrapped up. Uh, I mean, all I remember is I re-recorded the last episode cause, the original episode I intended to do was so god awful that I I felt I owed it owed it to the listeners to to take another crack at it and do my best and uh, I think we did okay. Um, it, it has been so hot here in the Bay Area for the last few days. You know, every year we get like about a week or two <clears throat> where this heat wave we heat wave comes in, and it's not. I mean, part of it shows me how spoiled I've become because as someone who used to live in Tucson, Arizona and lit, spent like 12 years in the Southwest where it gets, you know, in the summer it's regularly orbit, you know, it regularly orbits like 110. You know, I'm in the Bay Area now and even on the hottest days of the year, you know, at least when you're close to the water, when you're in Berkeley, San Francisco, Oakland, wherever you happen to be, you're by the water. And I think, you know, it, it, it may knock on the door of 100 degrees, but usually it hovers around high 80s, low 90s. And I am still unbelievably hot. And we get like two weeks out of the year where it's it's not just hot, it's stagnant hot. Where there's no breeze, there's not a cloud in the sky. And it's just this oppressive goo of a heat. And I feel spoiled. One, because I used to live in... Uh, even hotter climates, and uh, but the thing out here too, I think we, that makes it different too. Is we don't have AC out here for the most part. I mean, of course, some people have air conditioning, but I remember when I first moved out here, uh, the first apartment I lived at, I was so embarrassed. I called PG and E, which is our um, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, our utilities company out here, and I remember calling them and saying, "Hey, will you guys turn my AC on?" And they're like, "You don't have any." And I was like, "Oh," uh, and they go, "Yeah, man, just open a window." And I was like, uh, okay. So, uh, I mean, that's how we've been living out here, you know, and the only, and I actually, I have no heat. I have no AC. 
you know, uh, it's one of the benefits of living in a pretty t- uh, temperate climate, but uh, or moderate climate. I'm not sure if I'm using that word right, but a pretty, a fairly temperate climate. You know, we don't have that one utility fee, but uh, you know, I got like the oscillating fan on me at all times during the day, at night, and I know it's hot too because my girlfriend who hates having the fan on when I go over to see her now, she's got the ceiling fan going at full blast, and even throughout the night. So that's telling you something. I mean, I know it's kind of a cliche, right? Girls are always cold, guys are always hot, but um, that's my experience. I'm always down to have the fan on, and my girlfriend's bundled up in the sheets and wanting to cuddle with me too when it's hot. And I say, babe, I love you, but you got to get off me, you know? Um, I remember one time when me and my brother were younger, we traveled to Africa, and uh, we were staying at this, uh, I think we were in like the Serengeti or something, but we're staying in these sort of makeshift well, makeshift isn't the word for it, but we're staying in these sort of hut-type things in the Serengeti. And one of the accommod- uh, one of the amenities that they provide for you is because it's cold at night, they put these warm, bl- they're like warm bladders, these sort of plastic r- or, or rubber bladders is what they are. And they're filled with boiling water so that when you get, it's, it sort of warms your sheets for you. And of course, if you don't know what's in there, it freaks you the fuck out when you crawl in and there's this warm body of something next to you. But uh, not only is it hot, but it's like falling asleep next to my girlfriend lately. It's like having one of these warm bladders next to you. It's cool for like 30 seconds, and then all of a sudden, every point of contact that your girlfriend's leaning on just begins to sweat. <sighs> so it's all, I guess all I'm saying is it's been uncomfortable. Um, and spent way too much time in the sun. I have this thing. I think my brother still has it too. I've tried to have it treated, for lack of a better word. I think it's called Tinea Versicolor. And I could be mis- mispronouncing it, but I bet if you tried to Google that, if you, they, they would probably try to correct you. And it sounds kind of gross, because it, it, I think what it is is actually like a fungus. And it doesn't look like a fuzzy fungus, but it's this discoloration that I have on my skin. And it's activated by the sun. So if I... You know, sometimes I, I, in general, I may have this discoloration around my shoulders and my neck that pe- that sort of peeking out of my uh, my shirt sometimes, and it's just, it's just never bothered me. Um, uh, my girlfriend will point it out. Sometimes other people will ask me about it, but I, I, it's just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe other people would run to the doctor and want to do something about it. It's just, it just never really concerned me. I actually find it kind of interesting, <laughs> honestly, the way it sort of changes shapes and colors depending on my sun exposure. Um, but, uh, just the other day, um, oh, I guess over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, you know, I had on Saturday, I had hiked with my girlfriend around the uptown area of Oakland. And, uh, I think we ended up walking like three and a half, four miles or something like that. So I got a shit ton of sun exposure. And then the next day we met up with two of our friends for a sort of social, social distance hike in this park called Briones, um, which is kind of near... Orinda Moraga area of the Bay Area. I think that's about right. I think that's about where it is. But it was completely sun exposed. And uh, we, we did like a four mile hike and uh, it was hot and the sun was beating down on me. And then Saturday, she and I, well, we tried to go to this place called Battery Spencer, which is north of the Golden Gate Bridge. So you drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, which is beautiful, to the sort of Marin Headlands area. And uh, just kind of looking for a good view of the Golden Gate Bridge so we could just have a picnic or something for Memorial Day. And we had actually tried to make this trip probably a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, this was in the thick. And I guess out here in California, we still are in in the thick of the shelter in place as other parts of the country start to open up, which is kind of scary. 
But um, for some reason, I just, you know, we had kind of hoped that, oh, sorry, we had gone out there before and it was closed. And uh, for some reason, we thought we'd just give it another crack. And of course, it's fucking closed. There's literally a parade, you know, you have to access this one road to get to this park area. And there's literally a parade of people pulling in, you know, seeing two cop cars that are turning people away. They're just giving the universal turn it around, turn it around gesture. And it's just a parade of people going in and coming out. It's like, it's, it's almost comical, really. But, um, but, uh, we ended up just going to North Beach, which is sort of the, um, little Italy area of San Francisco. And there's this park there. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but if you're in the area, you know it. There's like a church. It's in North Beach. It's the park in North Beach. And uh, we're sort of sitting on the periphery of that. And there are a shit ton of people in the park. Although they did something that I haven't seen anywhere else, which on the grass, they had sort of, you know, like they paint the lines on a football field. They had painted these circles for people to sit in these sort of designated social distance area across the entire field of the park. And I thought, oh, that's actually a pretty creative solution. You know, and thankfully she and I were sitting on this long park bench. We were the only ones on it. So I felt relatively safe. We walked around North Beach a little bit. Um, but, um, yeah, something came up at the end of that time together that, you know, I wouldn't bring it up if she and I hadn't spent like hours discussing it last night. And, uh, but it's something that comes up again and again for us. And, you know, not that the specifics of this will be important to you, but it sort of brings me to a larger point that I've been thinking a lot about, um, not just in the context of my relationship, but the context of my life and especially the conversation that she and I had about it. Um, and I, I mean, I dedicated my whole last therapy session to talking about this. Um, uh, we'll see if we can sort of unpack some of it because I'm wondering if other people feel the same way. And then, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of lesson in here or, or, or some, there's some component of this that's important, important, not just to my life now, but I, I feel like it's almost been important to my whole life. But, but, uh, she and I are spending time together. You know, I had just come out of finals, um, where I was spending in, just insane amount of time studying. Finals ended on Monday. Um, Tuesday I work. Wednesday I have off. I spend the night with my girlfriend. And uh, because I got one of my shifts covered to prepare for finals, uh, my schedule was working. I was working Thursday, Friday, picked up Saturday, and worked Sunday. So um, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm working. I also, during you know Saturday day and Sunday day, I'm going out and hiking with my girlfriend so Monday comes, it's a Memorial Day, it's the holiday, and um, I wake up, and I already know in my gut that I'm burnt out, you know, that if I had my druthers about it, I would stay home. And interestingly enough, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I felt this, you know, I, I knew I was burnt out, but I hadn't really articulated it, but I woke up that morning after, you know, sleeping in, my brother and um, his fiance were FaceTiming me. So I was checking in, and of course, because it was the holiday, they were asking me, what my plans were. And I said, well, you know, it's, uh, it's the holiday. It's a day off for me and my girlfriend. And, uh, um, you know, I know she wants to go out and do something. You know, she's been going a little more stir crazy, uh, with the shelter in place than I have. And so getting out for her when she's able to is very important. And, uh, but I said at that time, I said, you know, what? but I, I mean, if I had my druthers, I'd, I'd very much uh, like to stay home probably and just sort of kick it by myself. But, uh, you know, this is important to her, so, um, you know, we're going to make a day of it. Um, and what I had said to them, 
<clears throat> and was thinking on the drive over is, well, maybe, maybe we'll do something for a little bit. And then maybe later that night, I'll just go home. And even my brother, um, maybe his fiance said, well, that sounds like a fair compromise. Well, unfortunately, I didn't, uh, I, I did not get in front of the issue and express that to my girlfriend. Um, she was expecting me to go out and we were going to spend the day together and I would spend the night. And that's completely reasonable because that's exactly what I led her to believe. And, um, so we go out and even as we're doing the whole trying to get to Battery Spencer and hanging out in North Beach, I feel like I'm in a bad mood. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm not, I don't think I'm being overtly cranky. I'm just kind of, I have a low simmer of crankiness. Do you know what I mean? And even though I wasn't really doing anything, I could tell that my girlfriend was kind of picking up on it. And I just felt like a, like a wet blanket on the, on the day. Do you know what I mean? And I felt like I was kind of, I was being a poopy pants. Do you know what I mean? And so we're kind of doing our thing. And eventually, you know, I think we had spent some time in North Beach. And then it was like, well, let's maybe check out the Embarcadero. There was not a lot going on there. And I'm like, let's just go back. So we go back to where we live, the area that we live in, in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, I'm tuckered out. I had worked late. I got in a lot of sun over the weekend. And um, I don't know if it's something about being bald, but I get, like, heat exhaustion, like, very easily. So I come in, I close my eyes for, like, 30 minutes. Then she and I are just kind of pittering around. And I, I don't know if we make lunch or something, but at some point we're even just, like, laying around looking on the computer trying to look at <laughs> her internet plan. And, um, she has this, like, her internet connection's ridiculously slow. And I remember, you can go online and actually do these, like, internet speed tests, you know what I mean? And we were looking at hers, and it was, like, six megabytes per second. And I said, I googled, like, well, what's the national average? And it was, like, 90-something, or almost 100, or something like that. And so, I, I you know, I even went home at some point. Um, and this was weeks ago when, when we did this test, but some in the interim, I checked my own and it was like 92 or something. And so it came up again that day and I was like, this is insane. How much are you paying? Like, there's got to be a way for you to get a reasonable internet connection, especially if you're working from home. So we're kind of trying to, trying to figure that out. And whatever her service provider is, has this horribly non-intuitive website. So I was like, whatever. And we're just sort of laying there. And what I'm thinking is about how I've been doing a bunch of school. I've been working a shit ton, which has been, you know, it just is the case that it's been frustrating recently. And so I was like, you know, I'm feeling burnt out. What I, what I would like to do if I could is just spend some time alone. So we've gone out for a few hours and now I'd like to go home. So I just announced her. I said, Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go home. And, um, the way my girlfriend hears that is we're laying around doing nothing really. And I'm bored. And so I want to go home. And, you know, it's nothing against my girlfriend. This is just her constitution. When she, when she, when her emotions reach a certain threshold, she cries. And it's not that she's complaining. It's not that she's uh, weeping. It's just tears come to her eyes because she's feeling a, a emotion, any emotion very strongly. And, um, and, uh, so we kind of have a talk about what's going on. I sort of explain my position and, and, and she explains, you know, she was expecting us to spend the day together and, and um, I think we both acknowledge in that moment, like, look, of course, if she had her druthers, I'd be spending the entire day with her. But this all could have been mitigated if I had just announced before I even headed out, like, hey, we're going to do this thing for a couple hours, but I think I'm feeling a little burnout. I would feel better if I went home later tonight. And so that's my plan. Well, it didn't happen. And I sort of, I, you know, I, I mishandled the situation, obviously. Um, 
But it also, you know, I've mentioned in the past that she and I are seriously considering talking about moving in with each other. And I think, you know, that's a threshold that every relationship that doesn't end has to pass eventually. And so there's always some attending feelings to it. But the reason this is important now is because, you know, the way I feel in that moment of needing to be alone, I think it gives her concern. You know, it's concerning for her because, you know, something that's come up over and over again, and it's just, it's a part of my personality is I need to be alone. And I think, you know, the, as this is coming up at a time where we're seriously considering living together, it's just concerning for her. It's not a deal breaker, but it's something that needs to be addressed at some point. And so even though I sort of stick to my guns and say, hey, I'm going to go home, we both make this point. Um, I plan to see you on Wednesday. Let's address it then. Let's both think about it in the interim. You know, I have therapy. I, I, I will dedicate my next therapy session to talking about this and and we'll co- get come together Wednesday and talk about it. So that was last night where we had this conversation. Um, the reason this is important, I think, is because in that moment where I want to be alone, or even when I'm home and I want, or, you know, and, and I'm about to go out and see my girlfriend, and I'm thinking, "Damn, if I had my druthers, I'd just be alone." I treat that as a problem, you know, and I feel ashamed that I feel that way, and I think, um, you know, I automatically put my myself in a position where um, I want this because it's a bad thing. And I might I might jump around with this thing because it's, I don't know, it's a complicated issue. But, you know, I've said to my brother, and he, he sounded, he, I mean, he tried to point out that that's a problem. But, you know, whatever, uh, if I just want to describe it dispassionately, it, ju- it just is the case that I have spent the overwhelmingly vast majority of my time on this planet alone. You know, and I don't mean not in a relationship. I literally mean outside of the proximity of other people. Like, alone in my room, alone in my apartment. Um, that is... I, I, I cannot think of a time where that wasn't the case. You know, and if I just strip away, or if I try not to think about the reasons why that was, I mean, literally from the time I was a kid... I spent most of my time alone, reading books in my bedroom. Um, And, you know, I try to project reasons on why that might be the case, but it it just is. And especially the fact that it happened when I was a kid suggests to me that it's just a part of my personality. Now, I think given the environment that I was raised in, you know, it actually came to be a problem for me. Um... Uh, you know, it's, 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 I think a lot of this stuff came up in earlier episodes where I've talked about, you know, I've, I've talked about very specific incidences of relationships that I've had with my, uh, with my mom and my dad. And, and kind of, you know, I've kind of alluded to the, the climate of my family life. Um, I've also kind of steered away from it a little bit. And it, you know, it's not that I was ever chained to a radiator and had cigarettes put out on me, but you know, there were some difficult chapters in my life and, um, you know, for whatever, for, for a lot of similar reasons that most people who grow up with these types of issues have them, you know, I've had issues with, uh, chemical dependency and, uh, you know, a lot of the time that I spent in my adult life by myself, I was not doing healthy things, you know, and it's not like I lost a decade of my life to a heroin addiction or anything, but, you know, I've had some chemical dependence issues and, um, and I've had, you know, I've had years of my life that I felt like were destroyed by social anxiety. I mean, there was, I think what I'm trying to paint a picture of is there, 
you know, I think that to be alone is, <clears throat> and wanting to be alone is a part of my constitutional character. I also think because of the environment I was raised in, it, it, it and because it's a part of who I am naturally, it got woven into my coping strategy for how I dealt with my life and how I was raised. It, it also happened to be um, a way to, isolating became a way of self-soothing also from the environment that I was raised in and, uh, and part of my coping strategy. And, um, you know, when you talk about these things, you sound very psychobabbly and people who hate therapy would hear this and roll their eyes and and start gagging at this kind of stuff. But I think it just is the case that, um, you know, the world ended up feeling very scary and, uh, you know, in my early twenties, and I really don't know if we've ever talked about this full, full hilt or full tilt or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, from the time I was 17 to really 26, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier, but 24, 26. I mean, my life was sort of ruled by anxiety. And a lot of my reasons for isolating were social anxiety. And I feel weird saying that because social anxiety is a word that gets kind of bandied around a lot. And, um, and, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like it gets thrown around, um, pretty freely. Um, but the truth is, is I, I just isolated a lot and it was a lot of fear and, um, and, uh, so there are, I mean, there's an entire chapter of my life and there's still this huge part of my character that frames wanting to be alone as sort of like I'm returning to, or I'm entertaining or returning to this place where I'm sort of coddling this behavior that was really hard that really ruined my life for a long time. Do you know what I mean? And because I had spent so much of that time alone, either drinking by myself or not being productive, doing nothing ostensibly, you know, when I, at the end of a long week, when I've done a lot of schoolwork or done a lot of work work, or even spent a lot of time with my girlfriend, I want to be alone. And, you know, that's my way of decompressing. And, you know, for a long, and I mean, this is another word that gets bandied around, bandied around a lot also, which is being an introvert. And I feel like introvert is one of those words like empath that, you know, everyone decided they were within the last couple of years and everyone's sharing articles about how to engage with an empath and 12 things you need to know about dating an introvert or whatever the fuck. Um, I mean, I definitely think I'm introverted, but I'm less concerned about, I guess what I'm saying is I'm less concerned about what you call it versus how it manifests, which is, I just think it's observably true that I need to be alone. That time with people, no matter who it is, my enemy or my girlfriend, time with people on some level is draining to me. And it doesn't mean I hate it. It doesn't mean I'm miserable. I can be having a great time. I just mean the engine, my engine, my emotional engine is idling when I'm around people. And the only time the only time I feel like I'm off and am recuperating is when I'm by myself when I'm isolated, you know, when I'm doing something like this, when I'm alone in my place, doing whatever it is I want to do. And even though, and I think this came up in therapy because I was saying, you know, even though how I spend my time in isolation is completely different, I still need that time to be alone. You know, even if I spend all that time doing homework or recording the podcast or whatever it is, or doing, you know, writing songs the last, you know, how many songs have I written in the last 
<clears throat> you know, how many years or how many videos have I shot on my own? Even though that, even though that time is being used differently, I still have this connection in my mind of being ashamed of it and feeling like that needing to be alone is a problem. And so when I'm sitting across from someone, and in this case, it's my girlfriend who's sort of confused by that behavior, I automatically default to this place of like, I'm asking them to entertain this part of me that I actually need to be working to get rid of. Do you know? And, um, I mean, even as I'm talking about it, I feel like I, like I'm not wording this as eloquently as I, as I want to, but maybe, you know, if this is actually something that you experience though, if, if, if this sounds like anything you've experienced, you're, you're probably understanding what I'm talking about, but, but I go through life. I think most people who were raised in families where they were just sort of allowed to be themselves, they probably don't beat themselves up as much as I do. And they're more apt to just sort of state their needs and, um, and, uh, and just assume that they're valid and deserve to be accommodated. And, uh, and so I guess I'm trying to work to this place where I can be comfortable asking for time to be alone. Like, you know, the mistake I made, you know, and again, not, not that my girlfriend, if she had her druthers would be to spend the whole day with me. But again, I bet if I had just said, Hey, you know what? I think I, I think I'd like to spend the night um, by myself tonight. So, you know, let's do this thing during the day. You know, this is important to you. Getting out is important to you. Let's do some of that. And then when, when that's over, I'm going to go home and spend some time by myself because that's what I want to do. Um, it would have been very different, but I didn't do that. You know, I felt the need to ignore what I wanted, assume that it was a bad thing, and just sort of do what the other person wanted. You know, assume that the other person knew what was a better way to spend my time and, and, and what was best for me. And maybe you maybe you don't have this issue and it sounds crazy. <laughs> But to me, you know, it's really taken the last 10 years to really look at parts of my life that I thought were huge character flaws of mine and just try to accept that that's who I am and that my life is actually better served by accepting them and actually trying to um, accept them accommodate them and actually try to ask, you know, you know, ask other people to accommodate them also, not as things that need to be deleted, but that they're just parts of who I am. And the person I need to be with and the people I need to be with, they just need to understand that that's who I am. And that it's not that there's something wrong with me. It's who I am. And I think if you've grown up insecure, I mean, you know, one time I said in therapy, my, ther- my therapist said I was wrong. I was under the assumption that, you know, for anybody with anxiety, it was probably some manifestation of like, you know, repressed emotions. And I think that's true for many people. Um, what I've come to understand is that actually some people just have anxiety. They just have a biological, uh, they're, you know, they just have a, uh, they just literally have anxiety. It's a biological component that just manifests itself in their body. They can have a great upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. 
But there is also this very common trait that I experience, which is anxiety is the sort of the vapors of repressed emotions. You know, you're going through an emotional experience and for whatever reason, it's not being addressed and that shit sort of festers in you and becomes cancer and has to get (laughs) dealt with some way. And the anxiety that you're feeling, you know, I've sort of described it as like, you know, you know, they talk about someone screaming fire in a crowded theater. Well, anxiety is your body screaming fire, but you're in the theater saying, be quiet. I'm trying to watch the movie. You know, the anxiety is screaming at you, hey, something seriously wrong is going on here that needs to be attended to. And then the, the, the battle with anxiety is you trying to, trying to live your life the way you think you should be living it. And like the vapors of that emotional thing is something that you think is dangerous or wrong and needs to be kept at bay. Like in another episode, I was talking about the plot twist of therapy. You know, a lot of us go into therapy or any sort of counseling or recovery or treatment with a very fixed idea of what we need to work on and who we need to become. And we're actually looking at that person, the therapist or the counselor to, to be on the same page with us, almost like a personal trainer. We want to come in and say, hey, you know, what are your fitness goals? Well, I want a six pack. I want to lose X number of pounds. I want to have, I don't even know what a respectable bicep diameter is, but I was thinking like, I want to have 12 inch Python (laughs) biceps and, uh, you want your trainer to go, okay, well, to do that, we got to do X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> the plot twist of therapy is going in and saying, hey, I want X, Y, and Z. And you provide, hey, I, I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. I need to be doing that. And a lot of times, maybe not for everybody, but I think a lot of people have this experience in therapy where they look up after a year or two, if they happen to stick with it, and their therapist is asking them to try doing it a different way. You know, to try, to try doing the thing that actually feels like the wrong way And that's like the plot twist. Like the thing that you thought was you giving up is actually you'll come, you'll come to where you want to be faster and quicker than you, than you were trying to get to where you want to go. I mean, I use this example all the time, so I'm sorry for being a broken record, but I think about the documentary, um, into the void or maybe it's called touching the void. I can't remember. It's a mountaineering documentary guys. You know, he's, uh, he's climbing. He has this accident where he falls through a hole in the glacier And he sees the hole he fell through that he could climb to to get out of. And he sees the vastness of the, of the blackness below him, the cave, the cavern that he could crawl into. So he can go one of two ways. He sees an exit that he can't get to. And he, he has a broken leg. He could keep trying to climb to that exit or he could risk going into the blackness and not, I mean, he doesn't know that there is a a way out down there, But it's really the only option he has. And I I feel like there is that kind of a plot twist in therapy that happens, which is, I think some of anxiety, certainly for me and I think for a lot of people, is trying so hard to do this thing that we feel like if we could only fix ourselves, we'd be able to do. If only I I stare at this issue hard enough, if only I um, say the right thing, if only I cultivate the right moral attitude, if I just fix X, Y, and Z about myself, I would be able to do this thing. And so much of our lives is spent trying to be that person. Um, um, But I think there's, yeah, there's this plot twist where you realize, well, what if I just let go of all that stuff? What if I actually sort of recontextualized? I mean, it's sort of that sixth sense quality of life, right? You have this young kid, Haley Joel Osment. I'm talking about the movie Sixth Sense with Bruce, Bruce Willis. It's a great film. You know, Haley Joel Osment has this experience where he sees dead people. And spoiler alert, 
the plot twist is that these things that are scaring him um, are really just needing his help. And if he just interfaces with them in a different way, uh, it's actually very fulfilling for him. Um, it's something like that. These things in your life that are scaring you are actually the key to your salvation. You know, they're coming in and you're experiencing them as, as phantoms and apparitions and they're scaring you because they're, they're asking you to change course and change direction in your life and try to do the thing that you, that feels like failure or that feels like abandoning the path. And usually the path is something that somebody else wants for you. Right, we're trying so hard to be who our parents wanted us to be, who our community wanted us to be, um, who our friends want us to be, and we feel like if we can just be loved by these people, we can love ourselves. But the truth is, it never works that way, you know. And I'm not saying that you, you know, some. And I, I certainly did this. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying people are are perfect, <laughs> are fully formed and perfect, and they just need to accept themselves for who they are. There could be many things you need to change about yourself, you know. You could be an asshole and you need an attitude adjustment, you know? Um, but I do think for many of us, there is this plot twist in trying to trying to come to understand that the things about us that we thought were tragic flaws, really. You know, I mean, I was sort of raised by movies and plays and uh, art, you know, and film and... Uh, um, and so I sort of looked at the archetypes of literature and film as like how you live your life. You know, I took real, real, and I think you should, but almost to a fault. I mean, I took those types of um, uh, operatic moral lessons into my life. And one of them, I remember just being a fan of Shakespeare, was the idea of the tragic hero. That, you know, the that you have a character who has an inherent tragic flaw that will be their downfall. And it's not something that they have any real control. They don't seem to have any control over. It's an aspect of their personality that will be their undoing. And I've always lived my life feeling that way, that I was, there was something about me and I never knew what to call it. You know, it's not like you can, you know, you can read Macbeth and think, oh, it's um, ambition is Macbeth's tragic flaw and it will be his undoing. Um, you know, there was nothing that concrete for me. But it was this feeling that there was, I have some tragic flaw that if I could just fix, my life would be, I'd be able to literally save myself. Um, and I've spent so much of my therapy trying to articulate what this flaw is. And, and you know, it's a literally, we've had the same conversation for like 10 years, which is, you know, what if you just, what if there's nothing wrong with you? <laughs> and not that you're perfect, but, you know, l let's just say that at least there's nothing exceptionally wrong with you, you know, and that the things that feel so far away, the things that you're keeping from yourself because you don't qualify for them yet. You know, I talk about this idea of working my way back up to zero. You know, I always think I'm, I'm trying to work my way back up from something to where I finally qualify as a human being. And then I can deserve all the things in my life that I want. I mean, I think a lot of people do this with relationships, right? I mean, for some reason, the most tangible one seems like weight or something. Like people think, well, I'd like to go to the gym and work out, but I'm going to try to lose X number of pounds on my own first because they're uncomfortable in their bodies. They don't want to be the fat person at the gym. They don't like the way their, they don't like the way their, um, uh, their exercise clothes feel. Do you know what I mean? And so they, they kind of want to deal, you know, they feel like there's a part of them. I can get to the gym eventually, but I want to, I want to fix this thing about myself in private because it feels vulnerable 
And then when I feel like I, you know, am worthy, I will step out into the public and, and, and do the work for real. Um, I mean, I think that's a microcosm for, I mean, I, I hear that in so many other people's lives and I see that in so many areas of my own life as well. Um, and for some reason, relationships feel like a part of that too. You know, there's so many people who avoid relationships because they think they have to, you know, they have to be this type of person before they're worthy of love or before they qualify for a relationship. And my whole thing is, is like, dude, horrible pe- Dude, there are people who beat their wives, who have families, who have wives and have children and have jobs and have careers and have a 401k and they're horrible people. They are categorically, uh, categorical villains in the world. They're real world villains and they have families and jobs. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think one of my biggest misconceptions about my creative career and one of the biggest, um, misconceptions that I think, you know, not that it was a bad thing, but that I I do think was a hindrance, you know, in terms of my, the success of my creative career is thinking I had to be a good person. I mean, I wanted to be a good person and, you know, I would want to be, even if I was successful in my creative career, I would want to be a good person. You know, and I've certainly encountered, you know, good people who are successful in their creative career. But it was like, I never really absorbed the cold hard fact that I didn't, it wasn't about who I was as a person that was, that would determine my success. It was, it was cold analytical facts like your audience and how much money can you make other people. And that's not a bad thing. That just, it just, that's the nature of business, right? That's the nature of the music business. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just trying to articulate this idea of sometimes we, we pit ourselves in this competition or this struggle that actually has nothing to do with the goal that we're trying to get after. You know, it's our own labyrinth that we put in front of whatever our objective is that the truth is if we just ignore, if we just ignore that battle, it's actually right there for the taking. And this is not a popular opinion, um, but it's the type of thing that, you know, if you're, if you're vehemently anti-Trump, you just aesthetically, you may not be able to absorb this, but I think it's the type of thing that, and look, I fucking hate Trump too. I think he's a fucking, I mean, I remember George Bush being talked about like he was the antichrist. I mean, Trump is fucking, you know, I've said you wouldn't want Trump coaching your fucking little league team, let alone be the president of the United States of America. Um, he's an odious, odious person. And yet, there's this idea, there, there's something, there is a sort of uh, monomaniacally practical view that he takes that I think there's still something to learn from, which is you think, you state a goal. What do I want? I want X, Y, and Z. I want to be president of the United States. Let's just take that one. And I don't pretend to be a political scientist or anything, but let's say it's something like, I want to be president of the United States. What is it going to take to do that? That that's the only thing that Trump thinks about. What is it going to take? And I mean, whatever it's going to take. I'm going to step on people. I'm going to lie about people. I'm going to uh, buy my way into office. I'm going to uh, manipulate people. I'm going to blackmail people. Whatever he does or allegedly does or whatever, lie, cheat, steal, whatever. He is the president of the United States. Now, it may be, you know, you and I might look at it and think, well, then what's it worth though? You know, most of us want to live through, want to live our lives and attain our goals with some integrity. We want what we want, but we don't want it at any cost. 
you know, we'd like to have our integrity intact at the end of that. The pe- some people don't. And while this is a very valid point, as I'm talking about, I don't know what the fuck it has to do with what I was talking about. Um, uh, except I, I, I think there is a lesson to be had there. But um, how does this relate to what I was talking about? Yeah, just this idea that people pit themselves in the plot twist of therapy and people pit themselves in things that could actually be antithetical to their goal, you know? And um, I don't know. I'm trying to bring this back to my girlfriend in the conversation that we had, though. But um, I hope this will intuitively make sense how this connects. But, you know, what I want in my life is I'm trying to have the courage, instead of just, you know, looking at my girlfriend and saying, what do you want? And just doing that and having that be the benchmark of our successful relationship. Because I think what I'm trying to say is I come to a lot of things not trusting my own judgment. You know, I assume that I don't know what to do. I assume that, and I think what I assume is that what I want is wrong. That because I have this, not that I've ever articulated it, but because I I operate with this belief that I have some fundamental tragic flaw about myself, I look at other people to tell me what the goal is. You know, I don't know if parentalize is the right word, but I feel this in every aspect of my life. I look at my therapist to tell me who to be. I look at my boss, my supervisor, to tell me who to be. I look at my teachers. I mean, I've talked about, you know, the teachers I respond to the most are the ones who are actually kind of hard asses because they have the clearest, ooh, I don't know if I've ever articulated this clearly, but they have the clearest benchmarks of success, right? Hey, you need to get A's in this class. You need to study. And I go, oh, okay, well, that's a clear goal that I can aspire to. Do you know what I mean? And so those are the areas that I kind of thrive in. You know, but I also, but I think what I'm trying to be more mindful of is, is how that can be detrimental to me. You know, so I, in every instance, I could look at my girlfriend and say, well, what do you prefer? Well, let's just do that. And that's the benchmark of a good relationship. I also think the seeds of resentment get sown. And so when I wake up after a week of work and schoolwork and, and a semester and not having had a, really a proper vacation and also on the cusp of this intercession starting where I have to do a semester's work, worth of work in three weeks and it's a Monday off and what I want to do is stay home, I assume that that's a problem. I assume that there's something wrong with me for wanting it. So I suck it up. I do what my girlfriend wants. And that is, you know, that's a recipe for resentment. And I, and I think what I was, what we, what we talked about last night is I think it actually, it has the potential. I mean, I love my girlfriend. I love spending time with my girlfriend, but I do think it has the potential to, to affect the rest of the time that we spend together because the less time I spent acknowledging what I want and giving myself permission to want what I want and actually having my needs accommodated. And maybe that's the benchmark too. I mean, I was saying, I was talking you know, I think it's a bad thing. And because there were so many times in my life where I did want to be alone to do unhealthy things, to drink or smoke weed or whatever it was, that I assumed that, that this needing to be alone is a vestige of that time period. And even though the observable behavior is different, that there's something odious about the need. But I think what we sort of came to in therapy, which is something I, I hope other people recognize too, is even if the observable behavior is reprehensible. Even if someone's doing heroin or having um, um, unsafe sex or um, spending, you know, being frivolous with their money, the need 
you know, the emotional undercurrent, the need that they're trying to meet is very, very real. They're soothing themselves. And the only way, and, and the, the coping strategy that they have is unfortunately, is ultimately unhealthy for them. But the need is valid. The emotional need that's driving that behavior is very real and very valid. And so even though I'm sober, even though I'm not drinking, even though I'm not smoking weed, um, although I did, ha- I accidentally took a sip of my girlfriend's beer like a month ago. That was literally the only mind-altering substance, and not even in a meaningful amount, but that's the only mind-altering substance I've ingested in like three years. That need is always going to be there, the need to be alone. You know, and that's why when you, you go to any type of recovery, you try to substitute your former coping strategies of like using drugs or whatever your addiction was with healthy things like running or mindful meditation or whatever the fuck, deep breathing or whatever the fuck it is. But I don't think, you know, and I just look at my whole life as evidence. Nothing's going to change the fact that your boy needs to be alone. Um, and the sooner I accept that, the sooner I get to feel better about it. And the more... Uh, confident and able I feel in asking for the things that I need I bet it would make the time that I do spend with my girlfriend even more enjoyable you know because I'm not looking I'm not wondering when my next break is going to come from I know it's going to be there when I want it hey when you want a break you take a break so anyway yeah we had a long talk about that on Wednesday and in some ways, I've, you know, it's sort of funny. It's, I mean, it's kind of like therapy. I mean, you have these conversations with your partner or in therapy that you think you're coming to for the first time. And then as you get into it, you realize it's actually kind of been the issue that you sort of always come back to. It's just another iteration of this issue that you always come back to. <clears throat> but I think in relationships, it's interesting, too, because, you know, as much as we want to love and accept ourselves, you know, nobody gets everything. You know, everybody, you know, I mean, I think people torture their, themselves with the idea like there is the one out there. I think there are there are many ones out there for you. You know, there are many people who could make you happy. And not that everybody's the, not that it's the identically same person, but, you know, the person you're supposed to be with maybe ticks eight out of the ten boxes. Do you know what I mean? Um... I mean, I don't even know if you want to quantify it that way. I think all I'm trying to say is, is nobody gets everything, but, um, you know, you, you deserve to be with someone who makes you feel relatively good about who you are, excuse me, and, um, you know, isn't needing huge overhauls in your, your fundamental constitution to be with them. And I think, I think, actually, I think the real thing that this sort of bled into in my conversation with my girlfriend is, you know, I'm 34. I'm not married. Uh, I don't have kids. Your boy has, is at the end of a failed creative career and is going back to, back to junior college and hanging out with a bunch of people in their early twenties. Do you know what I mean? So I look at other people my age and they're in a completely different chapter. Many of them, many of them are exactly where I'm at. Many people are far behind me, but there are a fair number of people, especially in my um, economic peer group or social stratus peer group who are doing, are much further, quote, along in their lives than I am. They are married, have kids, are already a decade into their career, right? 
are on the cusp or already own a home. Do you know what I mean? Um, and while I see that, if I'm being honest, it's never really been an issue for me. But as I live in the world, and as I live with my girlfriend, and especially by extension my girlfriend's family, that is an issue for people. <laughs> you know, and I'm very lucky that my girlfriend seems to be okay with it. You know, not that, again, if she had her druthers and could wave a magic wand, maybe my life would, would, would work very differently. But as far as her needs are concerned and what she wants in her relationship and our relationship is, you know, you know, I, well, I guess I don't want to compare people, but for some people, the, the primary important things in their relationship are they want to meet someone who's ready to get married, who wants to have kids, and is at a certain point in their career. They want X, Y, and Z. And that person is out there. But people are a whole alphabet, you know, and so you can get X, Y, and Z, but you got to make sure you can tolerate the rest of the alphabet because there might be a lot of fucking other crazy things that come along with that, you know. And so, you know, there are many things that I don't have in my life that maybe my girlfriend would would want if she could wave a magic wand. But whatever the X, Y, and Z that I do have, that's what she's in for. And she's willing to accommodate the rest. Do you know what I mean? Um I'm not sure if I'm stating this clearly enough, but what I'm trying to do is equate this with the idea of the sort of plot twist of therapy of, you know, the thing that you think about you that needs to get changed is, is probably okay, that you deserve to be with the person that accepts certain things about you, you know, and doesn't need these huge overhauls in your character to be happy with you. Um, I mean, it's something that comes up with me on the lines. It's something I, I try to express to other people, which is, you know, it doesn't mean that you're perfect the way you are or that your life doesn't change. You know, I mean, that like life is, you know, we commit ourselves to these long-term processes, right? Like your education. <clears throat> I'm in my education, but that is a, um, how do I say it? That has a trajectory, right? Um, it will end. As long as I commit to the process, it will end. Uh, um you know, you may be at the beginning of your career, but as long as you're committed to it, you advance in it. Do you know what I mean? So you're committed to these processes that, that, that carry you to different points in your life. Um, uh, anyway, man, I'm sort of swimming in my words here. Um, I feel like I'm becoming less articulate as we go, but, um, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, where you're at specifically may not be a point you want to be at forever. And it doesn't mean that somebody has to accept you at that point if you never move, but you have to be moving in the same direction. And, um, you know, like I can't change the fact that when I met my girlfriend, I was drinking and smoking cigarettes, but I wanted to quit. And that's something. And I can't change the fact that when I met her, I wasn't in school and hadn't finished my education, but I went back. And that's something. You know, and I can't change the fact that I spent the time of my life that most people are sort of investing in their careers, pursuing a creative one that ultimately didn't work out. But I'm happy that I did that. You know, because even if, <laughs> you know, even if it's just, it's, it's, it's my journey, you know, and you know, again, these kind of sound like the breathy things that even I roll my eyes at when people, it's, you know, I'm not, you know, it's my truth. It's my journey. It's what had to happen for me to be where I am. But, 
you know, it, 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 that's what it is. And it's, it's my life. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been sort of vulnerable for me to ask somebody to accept that and even trust that the person does, you know, because again, that idea of, of assuming I need to be what other people want from me looms large. You know, but I always want to make sure I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to do it. And I don't just mean doing whatever you want. I mean that, you know, the whatever I'm committing to in my life, whether it's my education or my creative career or marrying this person or, um, uh, you know, that those are things that, you know, res- that, that they're things I want for myself, you know. Anyway, maybe maybe my conversation is breaking down because that's exactly where we're at. You know, I'm at the fringe of my understanding of this issue. You know, a lot of what we talked about earlier in this hour are things I've thought a lot about and talked about. And and maybe we've just arrived at the point where my understanding grows dim and I'm still sort of feeling my way forward in the dark. But does it does what I what I've said make sense so far? I mean, I just have to believe that that. I just, I feel like so many people have to relate to that in their own way. <clears throat> and I think the flip side of that is what I think happens to a lot of people too, which even though my journey has been circuitous, I've always kind of followed whatever I felt the calling in my life was at that time versus other people who may have more um, comparatively um, normal trajectories, you know, went to school, got married, had kids, are in their career. I know plenty of those people who look up at my age and think, what the fuck? Why did I do this? Why didn't I do the thing that I wanted to do? I mean, you know, this is one of the hardest parts, I think, about my creative career not working out, but I'm so glad that I wrote it as long as I did. And and not that it doesn't make this chapter of my life a little more difficult in terms of needing to go back to school now and the time that that's going to take and starting my career late. Like, there, there definitely will be real consequences to that choice. But, you know, as somebody who lives very close to their feelings, who is very attuned to how they're feeling and and how that really impacts my life, um, I'm so glad that I did it because if I hadn't done it, I would have lived with so much regret and that would have made me miserable in my life. And not that I'll ever not want to have had a creative career, right? Like, or feel like, damn, I feel like I would have been more happy in life if my creative career had worked out. And who knows, maybe I wouldn't have. But I don't think I'll ever not want it for myself or feel like, feel on some level that, hey, I was supposed to be an artist. Um, the fact that I wrote it as long as I did and I accomplished what I did and still felt like it wasn't going to work out, I always had that experience to look back on. And even though you know you know you sort of um, hyperbolize or romanticize in hindsight, I'll be able to say, "Hey, no man, you were there. You saw how awful it was. It w- it made you unhappy. You know. So quit deluding yourself. You know, and realize you're at where you're at for the right reasons. You know, that you chose to do this. You know, you weren't just forced out of something." You know, it's not like my life was interrupted. I was well on my way to success and all of a sudden I accidentally got someone pregnant and had to give it up. You know, you, this fucking roller coaster ride was kind of coasting to a stop and you made the reasonable, considered decision to do something else. Um, you know, that was the right decision to make. Um, 
and even though I'm kind of now starting a trajectory that many people have started earlier, I think that you know, emotionally the journey for some people are very similar, where even though they were going to school, even though they did start the career, even though they did marry the person and have the kids, I think a lot of times they look up and think, damn, my journey should have been something else. I mean, it's a lot of times when you see those older dudes, and maybe this is coming full circle to the Epstein thing. I don't pretend to know what his motivations were. But you do see this thing with people who were kind of nerds in high school and didn't sow their oats, and then they become successful in tech, and maybe they have some money, and they just seem like kind of lost people. Like they're they're buying sports cars, and they're like they're sleeping around, and they're trying to date supermodels, and it's like they're trying to make up for a chapter of their life that they didn't experience something, you know? And they're trying to like pack that hole in their life, this deficit that they've had with something. Now they're trying to make up for lost time, and it's like. I don't know that you ever really can. You know, your life is supposed to have seasons and you're supposed to, I don't know, be where you're at and let the experience shape you. And I mean, even when I was single, I remember going into therapy all the time and telling her, I think I'm, you know, I'm worrying that other people think I'm wasting my life, but I know that I'm forging a part of my personality by going out and like talking to people. I'm so glad I did that. You know, because yeah, maybe other people would have looked at it and thought, dude, you're a fucking loser. Like, what are you doing? I, I, I just knew that I was forging something. And, um, you know, again, I, I go back to this, you know, when I was running a lot in my neighborhood, I still see it, frankly, but I, I, I go back to the time where I first saw it is, you know, the first half marathon I trained for, I was like 26 or eight, maybe I was like 28 or something. But the point is, I remember I used to see this car in my neighborhood all the time. It was this little black van and it had this like magnetic sticker on the side of it that had this quote that I fucking thought was so stupid. And the quote was, nobody else can tell you what work you're here to do. And I remember when I saw that, I thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. I was like some hippie, hippie Berkeley bullshit, right? Um, but that phrase has always stuck with me. And, and for some reason it comes up for me all the time now. And... You know, it's hard because there's plenty of people who seem to be committed to fucking self-destruction and you talk, like, literally going to bed last night, I was watching Hoarders with my girlfriend and you have a guy who's living in a mountain of trash and people are saying, hey man, you need to fix this shit. And he's like, no, I'm fine with this. And so now that person is seriously mentally ill, but I'm saying, you know, there are plenty of people we don't trust their calibration, <clears throat> but you ultimately you have to look into yourself right? You are the master of your own destiny and you have to decide how well calibrated you are. Now, I highly recommend you get a good therapist <laughs> and elicit their opinion as well, because sometimes we do need that objective third-party person to tell us, I know that sounds like a good idea, but I don't think it is. And my therapist has stopped me from doing a lot of things that I thought were good ideas at the time that would not have been good ideas. <clears throat> but more often than not, she's encouraged me in directions that I wanted to go, but was, were scared to. And, um, and, uh, in hindsight, all, all told, I think it served me well. And, uh, I think how this relate, relates to my girlfriend, maybe is I was, I was telling her, you know, we've been together four years. We don't even live together. And many of her friends and even family have commented to her, like, isn't that kind of strange? Like, shouldn't you guys be at point X, Y, and Z by now? <clears throat> and I totally get that. You know, I'm not saying that's not a valid criticism. Um, but I think where it's easy to get misled is to understand the criticism and be swayed by it. It takes a little more courage to sort of 
take it in, evaluate it and understand it, but also feel very strongly that while that is something that many people want for themselves and many people aspire to, I need to trust my own process. And things between me and my girlfriend have developed very slowly. But I know me, and I know that they needed to develop slowly. And I'm, you know, I'm not a self-sabotaging type person. But I do think, you know, if within a year of our relationship, my, my girlfriend was saying things like, hey, we need, to get, we need to get married, we need to move in with each other, I, I would have been freaked the fuck out. And I probably would have been scared and, and exited the relationship. Um, I think it goes back to this idea of therapy. Like, a lot of people vastly underestimate the amount of time they need to work through an issue. And part of why people need therapists is because they're getting over a breakup, say. And when they talk with their friends, it's the only thing they can talk about. And their friends are sick and fucking tired of hearing it because their friends feel like they know what the person needs. Hey, you need to get over that person. That person's a dick. But emotional work is hard and the people who are going through it need more time than other people will allow them. And I think there's something, you know, you have to honor yourself and your feelings to trust that things take the time that they take. And if you're still needing to talk about something, it's because it still needs to be worked through. There's still work to be done. And... You know, I'm the type of person who challenges myself, you know. Um, look, your boy quit substances. Your boy went to therapy. And these are all things I did for myself. You know, your boy is going back to school, whatever it is. Um, so even though things have taken long for us, they have kind of developed in a way that, you know, that I've, I've felt safe. And I don't mean that in like a, a traumatic sort of way, like I feel endangered otherwise. I'm, I'm just talking like emotional safety. I'm talking about... Uh, emotionally safe, you know, vulnerability safe. Like, hey, I need to open up to you, you need to open up to me, but it needs to feel safe and I need to feel understood and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's something that has budded slowly for me, but it's needed to. Otherwise I would have been, it would have been overwhelming. You know, it would have been too scary. And I think the point I'm trying to make is there's nothing wrong with that. And even though maybe, maybe even nine out of 10 people would not want it for themselves, I know in my gut it's what I have needed. And trying to give myself permission to be okay with that has both been validating, but also um, kind of scary. You know, I'm not saying it's courage with a capital C, but it's a type of courage to, you know, <laughs> I mean, try to accept yourself. You know, and I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but, you know... I mean, I, th I think one thing I've said about cliches is it always sucks when you're inside of one, <laughs> but you act once you're inside of it, you actually see the architecture of it and you realize, oh, it's actually kind of a profound idea that gets distilled into this sort of platitude or cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason because it's actually a very common experience and um, the cliche is really a, a placeholder um, for what is in actual fact a very sort of profound experience and, and thought if you uh, ever happen to be inside of it. But anyway... I see we're at the end of our time here, and we've traversed a lot of fucking ground. I mean, this may be one of the episodes where we've just been banging on all cylinders. And literally, as I'm saying it, the music is playing me out. So um, I'm turning it off now so it doesn't bleed into the microphone, but this will very likely sync up well uh, with the music anyway. So what a good episode, man. Uh, I don't know if it'll sound as good as it felt, but it felt like a good episode to do. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. 
on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And take a moment to rate and review us if you enjoy the podcast. Uh, give us five stars and type a couple sentences about what you enjoy about the show. And uh, try to think of one person in your life who you think would like it and share it with them. Send them your favorite episode. Send them this episode. Um, this is what we do here. We kind of go deep and we talk about feelings and it's stream of consciousness and it is what it is, right? But, um, you know, for people who want that, for people who are on that wavelength, I think this is just the fucking ticket, right? Um, so yeah, another episode under the belt. Keep on rolling, man. I see, I see our, our year anniversary is off on the horizon, not too far away. You know, it's not right around the corner, but it's not too far away either. So I'm, my, my gears are beginning to turn about, you know, what can I, what can we do for that year anniversary episode? Can we do something special? Regardless, we'll think about that. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now. Ciao.